This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Silky Tea Bags. Start your morning off with some environmental destruction with Silky Tea Bags today. Welcome to episode 18 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Before jumping into our main topic today, we first need to talk a little bit about Connecticut, the state whose only attractions are an aquarium, a water park, a couple casinos, and a billion highways with wall-to-wall traffic that will never move until the end of time. I'm from Bethel, Connecticut, and when I tell that to people who aren't from within a 10-mile radius of Bethel, they ask where in Connecticut that is, and I tell them it's right next to Danbury, and I'm not sure why I do that. Yes, Danbury is a city, but there are even other people in Connecticut who haven't heard of Danbury. In fact, the only people who know where Danbury is are people from Danbury, people from Bethel, and people driving from Boston to New York City realizing three quarters of the way through the trip that there's a Chili's off exit 8 and they haven't had fajitas since 2012. That is, until a few weeks ago, when John Oliver said this. Because if you're going to forget a town in Connecticut, why not forget Danbury? Because, and this is true, Danbury. From its charming railway museum to its historic Hearthstone Castle, Danbury, Connecticut can eat my whole I know exactly three things about Danbury. USA Today ranked it the second best city to live in in 2015. It was once the center of the American hat industry. And if you're from there, you got a standing invite to come get a thrashing from John Oliver, children included, you. Now, I was born in Danbury Hospital, so I am technically from Danbury, which begs the question, how do I respond to your standing invite to get a thrashing? Do you come to me? Do I have to go to you? Is there a coupon code where I can order my thrashing through Postmates and have it delivered in 30 minutes or less? Will I wake up Christmas morning to find you covered in chimney dust sitting under our tree? Because out of anyone in the world, a person who looks, sounds, and acts like the cross between Gordon Ramsay and a toucan is absolutely who I would want to get a thrashing from. But when the mayor of Danbury, Mark Boughton, caught wind of John's segment, he made a pretty major declaration. Behind me, you'll see the city of Danbury sewer plant. And we are going to rename it the John Oliver Memorial Sewer Plant. Why? Because it's full of just like you, John. And being from a town over from Danbury, this wasn't all that surprising. In fact, the most surprising part was the mayor bleeping out the word crap, because one, crap isn't a swear word unless you're five, and two, if you're gonna use a bleep anyway, why not pick a fun word like dookie or butt driblets or dog logs or corn-eyed butt snakes? But unless it's a competition for who is willing to say PG-rated words, Danbury's hard to beat. Ever since Bethel seceded from Danbury in 1855, Danbury has beaten Bethel over and over in every sporting event. In 2020, Danbury High School's wrestling team won its third New England wrestling championship in four years, which puts a real question mark on John Oliver's invitation for Danbury children to receive a thrashing from him. And sure, my travel soccer team in elementary school went undefeated one season, but I sat on the bench all season while my coach and two of our players were secretly from Danbury. In fact, it's gotten so bad that Bethel High School's rival is actually Danbury's Catholic High School, and even they beat Bethel on a regular basis. So after Mayor Boughton's response, John Oliver had to do what every athlete in Bethel does, dust off a blowout loss against Danbury and try again. And this time, he took a different approach. And the truth is, things have been so bleak recently, 
I needed something like this. And that is why I was so incredibly disappointed to then see this. Our video isn't Jess. We're not really going to name the sewer plant after John Oliver. Wait, so you're not doing it? Oh, f you, Danbury. Listen, I didn't know that I wanted my name on your factory, but now that you floated it as an option, it is all that I want. So let's get down to some brass tacks here, because I've got a very serious proposition. I will donate $55,000 to charities in your area if, and only if, your mayor makes good on his promise to officially name that sewage plant after me, because I want this. I need this. Incredible. Since that offer, Mayor Boughton has agreed to name the sewer plant on the condition that John Oliver be physically present at the ribbon cutting. And John, I really hope you come. Not just so I can walk up to you at the sewer plant and say, hey, does anyone smell popcorn so you take a deep inhale and smell sewage, but because if you have any hope of holding your own against Danbury, you need a lot more ammo than a castle and railway museum. If you don't come to Danbury, you'll never know that the city was so poorly planned that they put a Lowe's hardware store and Lowe's movie theater in the same lot, or that there's a street named Ball Pond Road. And I wouldn't have become so personally invested in this normally, but John forced my hand a bit because after showing several clips of young people in Danbury responding to his original segment on Danbury, John said this. Honestly, Danbury might want to seriously consider changing its nickname from The Hat City to The Young People Who Seem More Than Capable Of Taking Over My Job City. And I can certainly agree with that. Not only have I been doing your job since April, but I've been putting out five to ten more minutes of content every week than you, and my team is just seven people, while yours probably has seven people whose only job it is to Photoshop pictures of shirtless Adam Driver. And not only that, but you've been off since August 30th, and your next episode isn't until September 27th, so apparently I'm the only one doing your job. So while you're off on vacation and I'm stuck taking over for you for the next two weeks, I'll start by actually looking at the thing you're suddenly so passionate about. Wastewater treatment plants. Because I hate to break it to you, John, but wastewater treatment plants are not quite as perfect as you might have thought. One of the lingering problems we still have to address is sewage pollution. Even after supposedly being treated, the wastewater from the tannery still contains dangerously high levels of poisonous chemicals such as arsenic and mercury. When it rains, Newport's harbor and beaches become polluted by human and animal feces. The city has an old combined sewer system that gets overburdened by stormwater runoff and often overflows into the harbor. It's true. Wastewater treatment plants have led to a range of climate and water pollution issues, all of which have lasting effects on the environment, economy, and health of people drinking the water. So today, we'll break down what those issues are, what impacts they're having, and where we might go from here. But first, let's talk briefly about how a wastewater treatment plant works. There's a few common types. A sewage treatment plant, industrial wastewater treatment plant, agricultural wastewater treatment plant, and leachate treatment plants, which treat water that came from landfills. When you flush your toilet, for example, that water travels through pipes and into the plant, where it first goes through screens to catch larger items like flushable wipes or giant stashes of cocaine. And that can eliminate large items, but it doesn't eliminate all inorganic matter. Since these bars don't catch everything, larger particles called grit still need to be removed from the sewage as it is made even more homogeneous. As the sewage flows into the grit chamber, the velocity of the rather viscous sewage is adjusted to allow for particles of sand and rock to settle out. Really? I thought grit chamber was the name of Ben Roethlisberger's beard. 
Things like sand and rock need to be removed early because after the grit chamber, wastewater gets treated with bacteria. The remaining sewage then flows down this way towards the secondary biological treatment process. And here it is. In these tanks, the sewage is mixed in with billions upon billions of bacteria, so all the dissolved materials that still remain can be biodegraded. Okay, bacteria. You're willing to feed on human feces, but you draw the line at sand? I'd probably eat the sand out of a preschool sandbox where Tanner was picking his nose and drooling before I'd eat actual human feces. That treatment method is important because since the wastewater is filled with bacteria, once the bacteria have degraded all the organic matter, the water then has to be treated again to kill off the bacteria. And that can be done in a few ways, such as chlorine, ozone, and ultraviolet rays. The water that comes out of that process, referred to as effluent, is clean, and is either returned to the river, lake, or stream, or in a few cases, actually becomes the next batch of drinking water. And according to Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes, the water, which was sewage mere minutes ago, tastes completely normal. All right, I'm gonna do it. All that was left was to try it. To tell the truth, it wasn't bad. I can't believe how brave I am. I can't believe how brave you are either. Not because you were brave to drink the glass of water that was once sewage, but because every single glass of water you've drank in your life was also once sewage. While these so-called toilet-to-tap programs get a bad rap for being poop water, they really aren't any different from our regular wastewater treatment system, where the treated sewage water returns to a river and then becomes drinking water again soon after. All of it once had poop in it. And that's a good thing. Wastewater treatment plants treat the water. Without sewer plants, we would be drinking poop water, or more likely, no water. And that's why, according to Eden Mati of Water and Sanitation for the Urban Poor, providing this service is really important. In cities, people are living in squalor, very poor housing, and basic services like water and sanitation are still a big problem. Huge swaths of residents in Dhaka and in Nairobi are lacking access to basic water and sanitation services which other residents in those same cities take for granted. But just because something is good doesn't mean it can't have flaws. I mean, yes, Tom Hanks is a national treasure, but have you seen the movie Volunteers? I haven't, but upon reading the summary which says he plays a spoiled rich kid who joins the Peace Corps to escape his gambling debts, I can assure you that that sounds terrible. First, during floods and storms, many plants can overflow. For a time Sunday night, 13 million gallons of liquid, a combination of raw sewage and stormwater from streets, was coming into the plant, overwhelming its capacity. All of that dumped into Stevens Brook, which feeds directly into St. Albans Bay, right next to the town beach. No one enjoying the water there today. Thick mats of green coat the sand. On second thought, I guess there is a scenario where I'd eat poop instead of sand. You win, bacteria. That was St. Albans, Vermont, and unfortunately, they're not alone. The EPA estimates that there are 23,000 to 75,000 sanitary sewer overflows per year in the United States, about a quarter of which are caused by storm and flood water infiltrating the plant. These overflows have led to beach closures, harm to several aquatic species such as seals and sea lions, and gastrointestinal illnesses in humans. And due to climate change, storms and floods are on the rise. 
Overflows can also be caused by power outages, improper design of the plant, and most commonly, pipe blockages and line breaks. Wastewater treatment plants also need to operate 24-7, and as a result, they require a lot of energy, like an acrobat or Kate from John and Kate Plus 8. According to the EPA, drinking water and wastewater systems account for 3-4% of energy use in the United States, resulting in more than 45 million tons of annual greenhouse gas emissions, about the equivalent of driving 10 million cars. Not only does that contribute to climate change, but it contributes to a huge burden to cities' energy bills. Nationally, the energy used by water and wastewater utilities accounts for 35% of typical U.S. municipal energy budgets. And while it's completely understandable that wastewater treatment plants require a lot of energy, they're also routinely using that energy extremely inefficiently, making these costs significantly higher than they need to be. In recent years, there's also been growing research into the presence of contaminants in wastewater treatment plants that aren't actually getting treated. Take microplastics, or as they prefer to be called, plastics with a really cool personality. Today, these microscopic pieces of plastic can be found everywhere from the tops of mountains to the bottoms of the ocean, and the chemicals added to the plastic can cause some pretty serious human health risks. BPA, for example, makes plastic bottles transparent, but there's also evidence that it interferes with our hormonal system. DEHP makes plastics more flexible, but may cause cancer. That was from the United Nations Environment Program, which explains why the tone of this video is so cheery and positive. If you listen to our UNEP episode, you know Stano is absolutely killing it with these videos. Keep up the good work, Stano. Your neighbor's never gonna know what hit him. So even though microplastics are impossible to eliminate at this point, we can try to block them and limit them to the extent we can. And many scientists suggest wastewater treatment plants are the perfect place to do it, as the water eventually becomes the water we drink. And while we do know how to remove microplastics from our wastewater, many plants don't do it yet. And microplastics aren't the only contaminant in our wastewater. Many more studies have found traces of heavy metals such as mercury, copper, lead, and zinc in the water, all of which have adverse health effects and associated economic costs. Wastewater streams from hospitals and farms often contain pharmaceuticals. And as I mentioned earlier, wastewater treatment plants are full of bacteria, and as a result, this happens. Individual bacteria can undergo random mutations. And for a bacterium, a mutation making it resistant to a certain antibiotic gives quite the edge. As the non-resistant bacteria are killed off, which happens especially quickly in antibiotic-rich environments like hospitals, there is more room and resources for the resistant ones to thrive, passing along only the mutated genes that help them do so. This is a phenomenon called antimicrobial resistance. As humans develop antibiotics to kill bacteria, bacteria figure out how to beat the antibiotic and stay alive. It's sort of like a bulletproof vest, or when your professor tells the class to turn their cameras on on Zoom, but you realize they have no way to enforce that and you leave yours off. Due to antimicrobial resistance, we've had to continually develop new antibiotics to treat the new, stronger bacteria, and that's worsened by the fact that we treat bacteria all the time. We treat it in human infections, we treat it in livestock, and we treat it in wastewater treatment plants. Given the fact that the bacteria actually share genetic information with each other to spread resistant genes, it's no wonder that wastewater treatment plants are a perpetual breeding ground for antimicrobial-resistant bacteria. As the CDC data illustrates, that reality is horrifying. 
Every year, more than 2 million people in the United States get infections resistant to antibiotics designed to fight them. 23,000 people die each year from these infections, many more by complications they cause. Clostridium difficile, which causes deadly diarrhea, is up 400% since 2007. Of course, that is not the way you want to get diarrhea. The only correct way to get deadly diarrhea is eating a meal at Buffalo Wild Wings. Sure, the wings taste great, but when they named their sauces things like Jamaican Jerk and Blazing Carolina Reaper, they were actually referring to how the sauces feel coming out the other side. But it's true. Antimicrobial resistance presents some major, major problems. In economic terms, the CDC estimates antimicrobial resistance costing the United States economy $55 billion per year, $20 billion in healthcare costs, and $35 billion in lost productivity. It also impacts the health of birds, fish, and other wildlife. And it's also leading to a terrifying amount of human illnesses and deaths, which could become a lot worse if antimicrobial resistance continues spreading as rapidly as it historically has. None of this is to say wastewater treatment plants are bad, because they're not. Wastewater treatment plants are by no means the only cause of these complex issues. These plants allow us to take water, a scarce resource as it is, and clean it so we can both reuse it and return it to its original ecosystem. And that's great! So as this research continues to develop, the goal isn't to demonize wastewater treatment, but to make the process work as well as possible. And luckily, we already have a lot of technology to do that. First and foremost, regions in developing countries without proper water and sanitation systems need them. And with the advent of some new toilet-to-tap technologies, that's becoming cheaper and more valuable than ever. The Omni processor turns sewer sludge, which is kind of nasty, into clean drinking water, electricity, and ash that is pathogen-free. The entrepreneur that owns this processor will get paid for the input, the sludge. And that same entrepreneur will get paid for the outputs, the electricity, the water, and the ash. That was Peter Janicki, CEO of Janicki Bioenergy and the inventor of the Janicki Omniprocessor. Not only does this machine turn sewage into drinking water, but it also produces electricity and provides a valuable investment opportunity for its owner. The only thing missing from this machine is the ability to dispense PEZ. While the sewer plants more commonly seen in countries like the United States would be expensive and often infeasible to build in developing regions, particularly those with drought and scarce water resources, technologies like this omniprocessor can economically create a clean water system for these communities. What about our existing wastewater treatment plants? Well, there's some pretty cool innovations going on here too. Not only are there several ways for wastewater treatment plants to reduce energy, turn to renewable energy, and become more energy efficient, but we now have technology for wastewater treatment plants to actually create energy of their own. This plant is one of just a few in the country where all of the energy it uses is generated by the waste collected on site. That starts with the sludge. It's deposited in an oxygen-free or anaerobic chamber called a digester. In this environment, microorganisms eat at the sludge and naturally emit biogas. This is a sewer plant in Downers Grove, Illinois. And while many sewer plants produce their own biogas and use it for heat, Downers Grove takes it a step further. They found that by adding grease to the digester, the biogas production is turbocharged and actually creates enough to power the entire plant. 
And as surprised as I am that it took this long for sewage workers to think of a way to create gas, this is pretty cool. Knowing just how expensive the energy costs are for wastewater treatment plants, that provides massive savings to the city. And bonus, it saves considerably on greenhouse gas emissions. There's also a lot we can do to limit contaminants. While much of what we discussed earlier is still relatively new research, we do have technologies such as screens that can remove microplastics. But even simpler than that, one of the biggest things we can do is monitoring. Particularly for antimicrobial resistance, monitoring can allow us to track resistant genes and try to prevent them from spiraling out of control. And beyond that, it provides a much larger data set for scientists to continue researching these issues and finding ways to make our drinking water cleaner and safer. Of course, even though ideas like these are cost-saving, they do take some initial investment, which is where policymakers on the state or federal level could help. Sewers are operated at the local level, but loans or other incentives to help municipalities with this process could garner more widespread improvements. Before John Oliver decided to poke the bear that is Danbury, Connecticut, I never thought much about sewage. I mean, there's so many better things to think about, like sports or movies or teacup pigs wearing party hats. But from overflows to energy to contaminants to antimicrobial resistance, wastewater treatment plants are creating environmental, economic, and health issues that are not only having considerable impacts, but are not all that difficult to improve. And if we do improve them, we'll save money, protect our aquatic ecosystems, preserve our public health, and John Oliver can put his name on any sewer he wants with a completely clean conscience. And I don't know specifics about which of these issues Danbury's renovated sewer has addressed and which they haven't, but I do know enough about John Oliver to know that if he found out the John Oliver Memorial Sewer Plant was causing any of these issues, he'd be right back in his white void shouting, Oh, f you, Danbury. Have you ever felt like the best part of waking up wasn't Folgers in your cup? Well, you're not alone because the best part of waking up is clearly throwing out your silky tea bag. Not only can you burn your mouth with some hot fruit water, but you can accumulate bags containing plastics that can't break down and other toxins linked to cancer. Silky tea bags, because if you drink tea, you're better than everyone else. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Patricia Keene, a professor of energy management at the New York Institute of Technology Vancouver campus and co-editor of the books Antimicrobial Resistance in the Environment and Antimicrobial Resistance in the Wastewater Treatment Process. Dr. Keene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. It's a pleasure to join you with The Sweaty Penguin. So, You've, of course, done quite a bit of research on antimicrobial resistance, including the two books. Why did wastewater treatment stand out so much as part of the issue? As I started looking at antimicrobial resistance, I realized that this is a really complex issue because you have not only the antibiotics, as in the compound, you also have the antibiotic-resistant organism and also antibiotic-resistance genes. So at the time I was doing a lot of my graduate work, I was working simultaneously with the co-author of our book on wastewater, Raphael Fougere, who is an environmental engineer, was working on nutrient recovery. So we've always had this idea that the connection between the wastewater treatment plant as a source for contaminants in the environment, but at the same time being a resource it's not only a waste. We thought that was a super important thing to uh, sort of make uh, a focus of how wastewater fits into this picture. Historically, it seems like we've 
kind of viewed antimicrobial resistance as this race where we have to create stronger antibiotics before the microorganisms adapt and become resistant. And to do that, the antibiotics have had to be a lot more targeted. And thinking long-term, is that way of thinking about it sustainable or are there better ways to slow resistance? That's actually the curious paradox because ultimately the race to create new antibiotics, we can't keep up with nature. It's a race that we can't win. And ever since the original discovery of penicillin, for example, when Fleming first discovered that, very soon after bacteria evolved for it to be resistant. So this nature that it's a race to create more antibiotics is kind of not going to work. We do need a more holistic approach. Of course, we do need new antibiotics. And in the last, I guess, roughly maybe three to five years, there are something like 40 new antibiotics in the pipeline in terms of various stages of development, but those are very costly. And the idea that it takes, in most cases, 10 years clinical trials to get a drug to the market. Bacteria themselves are developing resistance during that 10 years, right? So there is a little bit of the more we try to develop something to kill them or retard their growth, they're adapting. So it's important to think that there's other strategies as well. We've gained a lot of experience in understanding like prudent use, the mindful use in veterinary medicine, not using antibiotics for for example, growth promotion or for prophylaxis. We've gained a lot of information and many nations have moved towards even banning the use of antibiotics in agriculture for that reason. It requires a combined event kind of approach to doing that, like reducing the amount of use in the first place where it's appropriate for things like certain antibiotics that are reserved for human use. In some cases, those are the only ones that are available. Those particular classes are the only ones that are available to treat certain infections in pets. And we can't across the board say, ban the use of this antibiotic and save it for human medicine or things like that. But it requires a more holistic thinking in how to deal with that use at appropriate point, consideration of what the fate and effects are once it's released into the environment and how that can transmit back into all of the ecosystem species, us, humans, animals, domestic animals, wildlife, fish, those sort of things. So in wastewater treatment plants, bacteria are currently used to feed on the organic matter in the wastewater, and I know the water gets treated at the end to kill the bacteria. So just to check if I'm understanding correctly, is that the stage of the process where we're seeing antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, that's part of it. But what's important about antimicrobial resistance is that it's actually present and potentially present all the way through the process. It's influenced by what you have coming in, which could be human waste. It could include as well stormwater one-off if there's a contribution to a waste treatment plant from that. But you have bacteria coming in and you have generally primary treatment in the first phase. Some of that's gonna look after some of the contaminant load, but 
the bacteria themselves will be traveling through the process into secondary treatment, further treatment processes along the way. So you always have input of bacteria coming in, but it's what's happening during the process and what happens when it goes out. Like when you see, for example, waste streams going into a wetland, the risk is if antimicrobial resistance organisms, genes or antibiotics can keep traveling and go through without being significantly degraded or removed. I know that wastewater treatment plants also struggle with a lot of contaminants from mercury to lead to pharmaceutical residues. And I'm wondering, are there any common threads between the presence of those inorganic toxins and then the resistant bacteria, which can be organic toxins? The common thread between those contaminant streams is that it's possible that even metals, for example, and you mentioned mercury, um, copper, zinc, some of the other trace metal contaminants, they can promote co-selection, which means that in the presence of those contaminants that some bacteria species will develop antimicrobial resistance as being exposed to those contaminants. And that's why it's important to characterize and know what the influent looks like in terms of its character, like whether there are metals or things like that that are present. An important thing in all of this is mention bacteria, bacteria throughout, but it's really the antimicrobial resistance part of this is critically important to pathogens. And it's important that a fraction of all bacteria are in fact pathogenic to humans, to animals, and to fish, and so on. A lot of bacteria, the ones that are in the wastewater treatment plant, are beneficial. They're doing very important processes. So the idea that a lot of bacteria are kind of adapting, depending on where they are in the environment, is super important, but the critical issue is the pathogen part. Having said that, it is important because we don't know a lot about how bacteria adopt or how they actually respond to resistance pressures. You don't want to develop resistance in, for example, environmental species that are responsible for critical nitrogen processes because we don't know enough about what that actually does in the bigger ecosystem picture. I'm curious if you could expand on what some of those gaps in knowledge are and if you're leaning in one direction or the other regarding how big of an issue the wastewater treatment is in the scope of the full antimicrobial resistance conversation. I think overall, a wastewater treatment process is a variable contributor, but I have to highlight that it's an important one. And the reason for that is because a lot of the stream that goes out into the environment, we have a lot of possibilities of influencing the receiving environment. For example, a wastewater treatment plant that's handling hospital wastewater is going to have a different character than a wastewater treatment plant in another region. This notion that there's a very treatment options, variations in process, use of membranes, advanced oxidative processes and things like that, they all show very promising results depending on the wastewater plant. It's highly site specific. That's an important one. Another thing that's really an element in all of this that we have to consider is understanding a bit better the fate and effects once the effluent has been released 
from the wastewater treatment plant. The effects on, for example, wildlife and birds at the wastewater treatment plant. And there's a lot of really important work to be done on things like that. Where in the process resistance is actually changing? Because we actually can't cultivate a good fraction of the bacteria, we don't know which species in many cases are involved in particular parts of that transmission, like whether it's biofilm preferring bacteria or whether it's ones that are going to be pelagic and swimming around in, in the water column. But where that resistance happens is there's a lot of room for characterization. In some of my work, we found that the antimicrobial resistance goes up in some stages, it goes down in some stages, and depending on whether you have a membrane process or whether you have a typical system, um, you can have effluent that the antimicrobial resistance itself in terms of organisms, in terms of genes, it goes down, it goes up, or it stays the same. So there's a fair bit of work still to be done. And I'm optimistic that some of those answers are going to be coming as, as we go forward. Learning about these concerns with wastewater treatment was really interesting since wastewater treatment is a way to reuse the same water over and over, which sounds like a very sustainable and economical practice. If the process were done without contaminated effluent, without antimicrobial resistance somehow, with clean energy, would wastewater treatment be an environmental good? No, first of all, no matter what, wastewater treatment is an environmental good. And, uh, and that's, that's a Im really important part of this whole conversation. So this idea that in the urban water cycle, now it's really important to consider the reuse, just exactly as you say, that's a sustainable option for using treated wastewater. The other important thing is wastewater itself, the treatment process can lead to some very viable resources, things like recovering the nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen, heat, and things like that actually are very, very useful and good contributors to a sustainable future. What would your advice be to a municipality looking to ensure that their sewage plant or what have you is creating clean water and not breeding resistant bacteria? First and foremost is that we live in a global community and at this moment in the developing world there's a fair fraction of the world that does not have wastewater treatment or a sewage treatment facility at all. So step one in many instances is build a sewage treatment plant. Now for much of the world as well that already have advanced wastewater treatment and municipalities that do have processes in place like more complete wastewater treatment. I think one of the most important advice that I would have is to monitor. We don't do that now in, in wastewater treatment plants and I know there is in fact a move and this is one of the sort of fallouts of the COVID pandemic. There's a number of wastewater treatment plants in the network. I know in the US and there's some in Canada and various parts of the world who are monitoring for COVID. 
So, I mean, it's remarkable that that happened really, really quickly. And this is a product of the rate of change we have now. But I think it's really good advice to monitor for antimicrobial resistance, not only the compounds themselves, that sometimes the chemical analysis is complicated, but antimicrobial resistant bacteria, the organisms, the genes, antimicrobial resistance genes, those are things that we could monitor and we could identify hot spots, regions of the, the city, if you will, or, or parts of the urban water cycle where you may potentially have a concern. Surveillance has been highlighted as one of the most important steps towards managing antimicrobial resistance, the things we talked about earlier, like actually measuring and monitoring. And then in the third, of course, of this triad for considering a more holistic approach is contribute with the monitoring data from a wastewater treatment plant. So there you have an idea. You could potentially get a lot of information about the risk by coordinating that. And I think that's a very positive step. There are wastewater treatment uh, municipalities trying to go in this direction. And I know that all of these things take time, but I think there's three things that are super important. Awareness, measure, and the idea that we recognize that the wastewater treatment plant is hugely important for developing nations as well. Dr. Keene, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to chat with you. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about something that I'm really, really passionate about. This wraps up episode 18 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Robert Branning, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.